Welcome to CNAS Live, a podcast that brings you recordings of public events from the Center for a New American Security. What you're hearing today is a previously recorded conversation, but we invite you to visit cnas.org slash events to learn more about upcoming discussions and ways to connect with us. Hello, everyone. My name is Liz Rosenberg. I direct the Energy Economics and Security Program at the Center for New American Security. Thank you very much for joining us. And welcome to this uh, virtual event on coercive economic measures in the U.S.-China relationship. This event coincides with the release of a major CNAS report uh, entitled A New Arsenal for Competition, Coercive Economic Measures in the U.S.-China Relationship. You can find it on the CNAS website. It should be live now. I'll give a a few pieces of logistical information to begin, and then we'll jump into the substance of our program. If you are on Zoom and you have a technical question at any time, uh, you can email Abby Eneman. Her information is in the chat window. We'll put that up for people who are joining in that format. If at any point you have a substantive question and you are on Zoom with us, uh, you can um, ask it in the Q&A function. If you are uh, following any other way, live streaming, for example, uh, please uh, tweet the question uh, to us using the hashtag EconArsenal. And I'll remind people how to ask questions again later. We welcome them and hope that this will be very interactive. Also, just as a quick note, we're not entertaining any anonymous questions. They must be, um, uh, you must tell us who you are uh, when you ask them. Uh, I will introduce our panelists to you in one moment, and then uh, as a run of show, uh, we'll offer a few framing remarks. We'll run a couple of polls uh, with those of you who are joining us as event participants, and then we'll move to a Q&A session. We'll reveal the results of those polls at the end of this hour, uh, and then what we'll do is close this session and move online to Twitter for a very interactive conversation in which we hope you'll join us. Uh, and you can do so uh, using the hashtag EconArsenal. Without further ado, let's move right into it. We are joined uh, this morning by Damian Ma, who is director at the Think Tank at the Paulson Institute. Thank you very much for joining us and being with you, us here today. Uh, Peter Harrell, adjunct senior fellow at CNAS. Uh, Ashley Fang, who is a research associate at CNAS and myself, of course, <clears throat> Liz. I'm gonna start with a couple of quick framing points for this conversation, and then I'm gonna hand it over to uh, Damian, Ashley, and Peter for uh, some more uh, points to guide our conversation and a little bit more discussion on uh, that comes out of the research that we've done in this report we're revealing, uh, releasing today. First though, to define uh, economic coercion. So for the purposes of this conversation and the research that we've done, we are talking about essentially <clears throat> restrictions on trade, investment, and financial flows that are intended to impose economic costs on a target uh, in pursuit of a strategic objective or to try and influence a foreign government or a group uh, to offer policy concessions. So my three quick points. First, it's clear to us that the United States and China have used uh, economic coercion to advance foreign policy and national security for quite some time against various targets, but that they're both using these tools uh, much more intensively in the relatively recent past and as a relatively new development, much more against one another. So 
I would even go so far as to say here that these economic tools are becoming quite a prominent feature, perhaps even a defining feature of the competition between these two countries. Obviously, these largest of economies are quite different. So the leverage that they have and the tools that they have are different. It's not the same set of tools and, uh, that each country has and can use um, to engage or target one another. And Ashley and Peter will offer much more information about what those tools are in just one second. So I'm going to uh, save that for them. But just so we're all tracking together, when we say this, what, what we're referring to, for example, on the U.S. side includes uh, tariffs, uh, investment and trade restrictions, sanctions on the China side, denying access to the Chinese market, popular boycotts, um, harassing foreign companies operating in China. We'll hear more about that. The second point I wanted to offer is that uh, when thinking about the record of success for these economic uh, tools uh, to achieve political um, concessions or uh, advance a political point, uh, there's a mixed record here. And while it's clear that they have created economic effects and economic harm and certainly powerful uh, political outrage and diplomatic fallout, it's also clear that they're not creating political capitulation, policy capitulation. And one important thing to bear in mind about these tools is that they may not be the tool, looks like they are not the tool in many instances for creating that uh, kind of um, broad scale political concession or capitulation. Uh, but uh, there are important instances where they are distinctively creating, uh, shaping the policy environment and constraining choices. And we'll talk more about that too. Um, tariffs uh, provides us a lot of fodder for uh, example, also for example, US actions against Chinese telecom companies. Um, <clears throat> when it comes to uh, China using these, um, using these tools, for example, we're also seeing um, important effects. Uh, again, when they're used targeting US allies, for example, as well as against some U.S. companies. Um, well, I'll leave that for uh, my co-panelists to get into much more, but particularly around issues of sovereignty and territoriality, there have been major successes that China has. The last point I want to offer here is that um, when just looking at the United States, it's clear that the United States lacks some strategic framework in which to deploy these tools that it is actively using. And what that has meant is that the signaling can sometimes be very unclear, the tools can clash. It's not clear to people in the United States and China and elsewhere, which is an escalation upon which, how they, uh, which can create a greater opportunity for misunderstanding and miscalculation. And it also means that it's not entirely clear for even the people innovating and implementing these tools what the best roadmap may be uh, in order to achieve uh, a final result. And we see that in the messages or the open debate um, in the United States around these. Uh, we'll come to this more at the end of our conversation, but one thing that we have encouraged is uh, a careful thinking amongst U.S. policymakers about how to best understand these tools and use them going forward. Obviously, right now, policymakers are concerned with the grave tasks at hand for managing a public health and an economic crisis, but it may also be a good time to think about in this 
economic recovery that the United States is contemplating and planning for, how to best position the United States economy to be strong and competitive in the face of what we expect will be the extensive and future continuing use of economic coercion in the US-China relationship. So with that, I'm gonna stop and let me turn it over to Peter to get a little bit more into these US tools. No, thank you very much, Liz. And it's a pleasure uh, to join this. And it was a pleasure working on the report we're releasing today. Um, I'm going to offer just brief comments about uh, two major trends in the U.S. use of coercive economic tools against China over the last uh, several years. Um, picking up really, Liz, on the point you made about how much more intensively the U.S. is using coercive economic tools against uh, China than we were even a couple of years ago. Of course, the U.S., going back to Tiananmen um, and since, has used coercive economic tools against China and arms embargo and other uh, sanctions uh, in the wake of uh, the Tiananmen Square um, massacre. Uh, and also in the sort of 2010 to 2017, 2018 period, the U.S., would with some regularity sanction Chinese firms, uh, you know, involved in business in Iran and North Korea and sort of over other what I think of as third country uh, concerns. But the last couple of years have really seen an explosion uh, across the board of um, coercive economic tools against uh, China. And let me just give a couple of statistics to illustrate uh, what I mean by the explosion in intensity. So, you know, let's take tariffs, right? Uh, I think we've all come to kind of see the Trump trade war and the tariff uh, trade war as a, as a significant event, but just a couple of statistics to illustrate how economically significant it is. Uh, in January 2018, uh, the average tariff on U.S. goods imports from China was 3% or just over 3%. Uh, today, which is after the implementation of the phase one uh, trade deal, the average tariff uh, is just over 19%, right? So a 3% to 19% increase. Uh, and the value of these tariffs, the Treasury Department is increasing, has, is collecting, has gone from something of, of less than $500 million a month to something north of $3 billion a month. So a really very dramatic economic uh, impact. But we see the, the uh, similar kind of dynamic in other coercive economic tools. You know, when the U.S. imposed export controls on uh, exports to Huawei, uh, the big Chinese telecommunications company just under a year ago, um, the U.S. had never taken an action like that against a company uh, at that scale before. And this is a company with more than $100 billion in global revenues, buying $11 billion a year of goods uh, from the uh, from the United States. And of course, the U.S. has since that point uh, taken similar export control uh, actions against a number of other uh, Chinese uh, companies. You know, similarly, U.S. investment restrictions uh, and the, the growing scrutiny under the CFIUS review process has caused a, a, a tremendous reduction uh, in Chinese FDI uh, in uh, the United States. And then, of course, we come to sanctions, where, as I mentioned, uh, over a number of years, we did sanction Chinese companies over third country uh, activities, but today we see growing calls and action to sanction Chinese companies over involvement in human rights abuses, over the COVID-19 pandemic, 
um, uh, over narcotics trafficking and fentanyl uh, issues and a whole range of other, uh, other issues. And that brings me to the second major trend here, which is that along with this growing intensity and in use, we've really seen a vast expansion in the goals served by U.S. coercive economic measures going beyond sort of traditional goals of denying uh, access of the Chinese military uh, to U.S. technology uh, and sanctioning, um, you know, Chinese companies involved in North Korea and Iran uh, to a, a range of goals, including uh, economic competition and ensuring that America retains its uh, high-tech edge, uh, human rights uh, issues, and then a growing range of calls to expand the goals of coercive economic measures into geopolitical competition, COVID-19, uh, and other issues. Uh, final point, um, picking up again where Liz left off on effectiveness. If you look at the effectiveness of U.S. coercive economic measures against China, I think it is distinctly, as Liz says, a mixed record. Uh, it is clear that we have generated substantial economic leverage uh, over China through the uh, tariffs. The tariffs have had undeniable economic impacts on uh, China. But a number of the measures, um, other measures that we've imposed have had, uh, I think, surprisingly little uh, economic impact. So, for example, the measure against Huawei did not actually reduce Huawei's uh, revenue uh, last year. In fact, Huawei's revenue grew uh, about 20% last year compared to 2018, though much of that was because of increased growth in China. There was some reduction uh, in revenue outside of, uh, of China, but still questions about what the actual impact of that measure uh, measure was. Similarly, we found in our research that one of the banks uh, that, that, that um, uh, the U.S. sanctioned over North Korea ties actually appears to have increased its capital base uh, following the imposition uh, of U.S. sanctions. So even at that sort of corporate level, uh, you know, unclear what the impacts are. And then, of course, as Liz says, at a macroeconomic level, uh, you know, although China has made some significant concessions in the phase one trade deal, the majority of outstanding issues, uh, at least in the trade arena, remain um, unresolved. And if anything, um, uh, U.S. challenges from China are uh, rising. Uh, so I think this means, you know, what this really means uh, as we move forward into an era where the U.S. use of these tools is only going to increase, uh, I think policymakers need to think more rigorously about matching specific tools about uh, against specific goals, uh, about having a realistic set of goals and understanding how the tools are going to actually achieve those goals. And then finally, as Liz says, thinking through a framework for the use uh, of a, a this growing range of coercive economic tools to make sure that they're applied um, effectively uh, in the years ahead. I will leave it there. Ashley, over to you for a couple more comments on uh, Chinese tools. Go ahead. Great. Thanks so much. This report was really exciting to work on. So over the past decade, China has dramatically expanded its use and reach of course of economic measures. And we believe that the importance of these measures will only increase uh, to the Chinese Communist Party. As one scholar who is linked closely to the CCP has said, course of economic measures is the best option between subtle diplomacy and all-out war. So this makes it one of the most important tools in China's economic toolkit. Over the past few years in particular, China appears to have accelerated its use of course of economic measures, expanding its modalities and tools, especially against U.S. partners and allies, as well as U.S. private businesses and non-governmental organizations. Generally, when it comes to U.S. targets, China's use of these tools has generally been proportional and reactive. 
Its expansion in these tools have also leaned towards formal creations, such as the unreliable entity lists and the social credit system. However, even as it's created more formal measures, China's use of course of economic measures themselves still remain largely informal. You also see this in a growing trend of China using enforcement of other formal tools like tariffs. Um, you also see a growing trend of deployment of law enforcement tools and regulations, as well as procurement measures. So for example, um, you have the Ch Civil Aviation Association of China use, um, essentially use this uh, example of a New Zealand plane that wanted to land in China. They, they mentioned Taiwan somewhere in their manifest, and the CAAC said that this violated uh, Chinese regulations and forced the plane to turn around. So China also appears to have expanded the use of its course of economic measures and the array of objectives that are invoked for the use of these measures. So the three main, the three main um, buckets that you see these in are in economic, perceived infringements of territorial integrity and its defense of national champions. So Peter and Liz had previously mentioned Huawei, and you saw this especially in Germany, where, um, where the Chinese ambassador there threatened Chinese German exports of cars, which is a huge, um, which is a huge industry in Germany, if Germany did not allow Huawei to participate in its procurement uh, for the development of its uh, fifth generation telecommunications network. As Peter and Liz have also said, the use of these tools have had great political and economic effects. And while some of these things may seem trivial, for example, um, GAP, not, uh, for example, Chinese netizens uh, having a lot of outrage over Taiwan not appearing on a map of, um, of China on a printed t-shirt, um, these small instances still snow have a snowballing effect and they add up over time. And this lack of US response has left uh, US allies and partners feeling abandoned. And with that, I'll turn it back to Liz and Peter. Thank you very much. Um, and in about uh, one minute, I'm going to bring in Damien Ma. It's a real uh, pleasure to have Damien uh, with us uh, today. But before I uh, turn the microphone over to Damien, we'd like to invite all of you joining us on Zoom uh, to take the first of our brief polls. We want to make this uh, webinar session today um, interactive and hear from uh, many of you from all over the world. We have participants from all over the world. Uh, and we'll talk about the results of this poll uh, at the end of this event. Um, but just uh, briefly, don't give too much thought to this, but uh, which of the following tools is likely to be the most used coercive economic tool in the US-China relationship over the next 12 months? And then we list out a number of the uh, tools we just discussed. So please just fill that out briefly uh, and uh, click submit. Um, and now, uh, with no further ado, let me bring in uh, Damien Ma of the Paulson Institute to offer thoughts on uh, trends in uh, the use of coercive economic tools between the U.S. and China in the context of economic competition uh, in the U.S. and China. And then also in light of the recent events that have all of us at home, uh, thoughts you might have, Damien, on how um, the COVID-19 pandemic uh, is affecting U.S.-China uh, economic competition. Uh, over to you, Damien. Thank you. Well, thank you, Peter, and thank you, Liz and Ashley. It's 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 great to be with you guys again. Um, I had participated in the workshops that led to the report. I'm not a, I'm not an author of the report, but uh, I hope I can offer some observations that can be additive um, to, to to what's already been said about about the various economic coercive measures, both on the U.S. side and also on the Chinese side. Um, and I want to keep my uh, keep my comments fairly brief so we can move on to questions as well in a, in a, in a conversation. But my, um, my, my comments will mostly focus on, I think, uh, 
you know, technology supply chains, which uh, really uh, is something that connects uh, the COVID-19 issue and also uh, just in general what's been happening in the U.S.-China relationship. And I think, I think we all realize that supply chains are kind of at the heart of um, some of the economic coercive measures that's been taken both from the U.S. side and the Chinese side. Um, I would just make two, uh, two kind of broad points there to kind of contextualize what's happening. I think uh, it's important to understand that when it comes to tech supply chains, and we've done some work at our uh, think tank on that, um, it is, it, you know, we have to realize that these, these supply chain ecosystems take years, if not decades, to build up. And uh, everything from lithium ion batteries to, to you know, a glass OLED displays to, 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 to semiconductors, which is kind of the most controversial uh, part of it, they, they require extremely high capital cost. Uh, you know, uh, everyone's looking at, you know, for example, Taiwan's TSMC, right? They're, they're basically what I would call the Foxconn of, of, of chip manufacturing. They're, they're a contractor, they're about 65%, nearly 70% of the market share for making chips for everybody from Apple to Huawei, um, basically any company you can, you can think of. But I mean, a plant like that costs billions of dollars to build. And the machines that go in there are extremely sophisticated for one, a crucial machine that goes in there that has, that's necessary for chips, which the Dutch make is $120 million. $120 million is the cost of a Boeing 737. So you, you, got, you got several Boeing 737s worth of machines in those plants. So it's, it's, it, it just takes, nobody's, so the switching cost is, re, is really, really high. And we, 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 also, we also need to consider that um, when it comes to supply chains, the reason that supply chains are, are, in, are in Asia, East Asia, is because the consumer electronics industry is there. You, most people want to place supply chains closer to end demand. So if you're making chips, who's going to buy the chips? The South Koreans, the Japanese, and the Chinese are going to buy it. So you want to have your supply chains close to there. Uh, it, you know, in, in econ, it's called the, uh, the, the agglomeration effect. It, it just, it, that ecosystem is, is extremely powerful. And I think it's going to take actually quite a bit to actually disrupt it. And this kind of goes into what's happening with the, with the viral outbreak. Uh, even uh, one, one anecdote is even during the Wuhan lockdown, the local government there made, made exceptions for semiconductor workers at a local plant to, to keep on going. Um, because they, they, they felt that was such an important part of, that was such a core industry that they wanted to keep the semiconductor uh, production going and same with the United States. The Semiconductor Association has, has argued that, that, that they need to keep going, going uh, as well. So we're actually not seeing as much disruption as I would expect it from uh, the tech supply chains. I mean, one leading indicator is look at, look at a company like, like Apple, right? They're, they just released their new iPad. They just, they're on, on schedule to release their, the, uh, their new iPhones. Uh, all the components in there are made in East Asia and assembled in Foxconn again, and we know that. And so to the extent that, that those things are not delayed, it's actually, a, uh, there, it's actually an upside on how resilient the tech supply chain has been through this pandemic. Things could change. There's still a lot of uncertainties, but I think it's, it's important to think there are, there are actually some upsides there. And lastly, I will just say, um, in, terms of, in terms of COVID-19, I think you look at the countries that have done well, uh, Taiwan and South Korea, and now China's coming out of it. Uh, those are happen to be the countries where a lot of the tech supply chain is concentrated. So there's a fortunate uh, kind of you know thing there that South Korea is doing well. They they did not shut down their economy. Taiwan did not shut down their economy, and, and China's coming out of it. And all the concerns about supply side constraints of China, uh, 
I think has been a little overblown. If you look at anything, the problem in China right now uh, is not on the supply side, but on the demand side. So, uh, so it's an interesting, uh, unexpected upside, which I think we should think about. And I think in terms of U.S. policy, we need to be careful about how targeted we, we kind of go after these supply chains because for a company like Qualcomm, 60% of the revenue is in China. Uh, and uh, that revenue get, goes back into R&D. So if, if, if it's in our interest to remain competitive in these apex industries, you need that revenue to fund R&D or else these companies just cannot innovate. So I'll just end my remarks right there. That's great. Thank you so much, Damien. Can I actually ask you to, uh, a follow-up question just to tease out a little bit more of what you've just said, which is really valuable. And we also see it as um, at the crux of this conversation about how China and the United States are contemplating the use of these, these coercive economic tools. Can you reflect for a second on how companies in that space, in these high-tech um, industries, are um, looking at this competition between the United States and China and the different um, economic barriers that both have thrown up or are discussing throwing up uh, between them to separate them? How are companies responding? What's your expectation for what it will mean about those supply chains that you say are, are really global spanning you know, in, in both countries? I think for 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 a number of companies, again, it depends on the it depends on the the industry. Tech supply chain is, is a very wide uh, segment, um, but depends on the industry. So there will probably be, there will be increasingly be a be kind of uh, planning for kind of a, what you might call a China Plus strategy. Is uh, I don't think you can get out of Asia per se because again, for all the reasons I stated on um, before, Asia is sort of where that supply chain has to concentrate. But Asia is obviously bigger than China, even though China has considerable leverage there. So I think there are companies that are going to probably be thinking of a China plus strategy in terms of locating their supply chains. And obviously, you know, there is possibility for Taiwan and TSMC to maybe relocate some of their plants. Uh, but again, like I said, that, that's a huge decision. It's a multi-year decade decision and no one will take it lightly. So, uh, so, so, I, I, I think no, uh, most companies probably do not want this kind of disruption, but I think for political reasons and because of the source of tensions, people have to contemplate that risk and kind of hedge against it. So it would be smart for a number of companies that feel like they might be affected to think a bit more, you know, do we, do we, do we, you know, uh, do we put 20, 30% of our assets outside of China or not? Uh, but that's a, that's a multi-year decision. Okay, thanks very much. We're now going to uh, pause for just a minute and put up our second poll uh, for all of you participating. I'll just read it out. Which of the following tools is likely to be the most used coercive economic tool in the US-China relationship over the next five years? So looking forward at that particular time frame. So we'll give you a chance to respond to that. And um, while you're doing that, let me just let everyone know who's watching or participating that the way uh, we would like you to ask a question and please do so, we wanna hear from you and bring you all in, um, is if you're in the Zoom uh, video with us, you can use the Q&A function, please go ahead and do that. Um, and if you are participating in any number of other ways uh, with us on video streaming um, or by the telephone, please um, tweet at us uh, using the hashtag econarsenal and for uh, those of you uh, who want to um, 
uh, ask your question live, we certainly encourage you to do that. You can, uh, in Zoom, click, uh, hover uh, your mouse over your name, click raise your hand. We can call on you, unmute you and call on you. Uh, if you're on the phone, you can press star nine. Uh, we'll see that you have a question and we can unmute you that way. And before we do that, uh, so go ahead and uh, get your questions ready or launch them off. Uh, and I will just, let's uh, put up our last poll. It's a really brief one um, while we collect your questions and then we'll ask them. So we can put up the third and last poll. Okay, we are going to now take a couple of questions. Um, the first one uh, comes from uh, Kim Elliott at the Center for Global Development, who asks, uh, given the depressed economic situation globally, China seems unlikely to meet the purchase targets in the phase one trade agreement. Increasing or restoring tariffs on Chinese exports would be damaging to the US economy, but given what seems like a new political strategy of attacking China, is there an alternative? Um, let me just throw that open to, um, to the panel. Um, Peter, Damien, uh, if you want to start off there. Sure, I'm happy to, to start. I mean, the first thing I, I, I would say, uh, Kim, and thanks for joining us um, today, uh, you know, is, is remember that actually the, the tariff reductions that the U.S. agreed to in the phase one trade deal are actually quite modest. The U.S., uh, you know, agreed to hold uh, in abeyance um, the final tranche of, of tariffs on the last kind of 160 billion, which is the kind of consumer electronics that Damien was just talking about primarily. Um, and then, you know, we reduced from 15% to seven and a half percent, the tariffs on the, um, uh, the sort of tranche that had just come, uh, come into, into, into force. So I agree with you that, uh, China seems unlikely to meet the purchasing, uh, commitments. There are provisions in, uh, the deal, you know, that would seem to give uh, an ability for both sides, you know, due to extraordinary circumstances uh, to address uh, the fact they're not meeting without reimposing uh, tariffs. And so I think that is an option for the deal. I also think the reimposition would be somewhat uh, limited if, if in fact they were reimposed. But I think the broader point you raise is correct, which is that given we're in election season, given that President Trump is renewing his hawkish line on uh, China, I don't think you can rule out either a uh, reimposition of the tariffs or indeed, you know, a variety of other uh, measures being imposed kind of between uh, here and, Nove um, and November as we get into uh, as we get into election season. Okay, I'm going to take uh, the next question, which comes from uh, April Herlevy at CNA, uh, who says, I think Damien Ma made an excellent comment about supply chain, the supply chain ecosystem taking a long time to build. What tools do the report's authors think the U.S. could or would use to alter these supply chain ecosystems? How would China and other countries respond? But I want to make that a question for everyone. Um, Damien, would you like to start with that? And then let's, uh, well, we can uh, go around. Well, again, uh, you know, uh, there's been some thinking of, of, of uh, you know, possibly making a TSMC, you know, uh, set of plants here in the United States, or, you know, uh, I think there was some, uh, there was, for a while, Foxconn was supposed to set up a factory in Wisconsin. We all know what happened to that uh, so far. So, but it's not just about single companies and single factories, we're talking about an ecosystem. So that takes 
a long time and and the power and the power of an of of an ecosystem does really lend to leverage i mean just look at shenzhen right that's 70 percent of consumer electronic manufacturing um what's the biggest uh, uh, uh cell phone manufacturer in in nigeria it's it's techno nobody's heard of this brand but it's a but it's a shenzhen company that's selling about a million plus units in nigeria uh and so uh there is some there's there there's a lot of um, you know, uh, ways to do that. I think one way to think about ecosystems is uh, you really gotta, uh, I think, incentivize co- uh, companies to kind of scale and produce here. One example that I'll uh, that I've talked about before, but I'll bring it up here is the example of lithium-ion batteries. We've been wanting to have lithium-ion battery production in the United States, uh, and uh, guess what? The only company that that has scale in this country right now is Tesla. That's the only country that can scale up lithium-ion battery. Uh, but if you look at what's happening prior to here, here is you know uh, there was a lot of uh, market volatility that wanted to kind of kind of you know uh, 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 damage Tesla because for their you know for market reasons. So there's a dissonance between what the policymakers want and what the markets think sometimes. And so it's um, you're going to have to figure out uh, how to how to get companies to to basically scale up on production, which then leads to ecosystem down the line. But without that first step, it's very hard to actually create an ecosystem other than just letting a few companies come here and there. And that, that's probably not going to be sufficient. Thoughts from anyone else? Ashley, go ahead, yeah. Um, so I think agreeing with everything that Damien just said, there are also more other additional steps that U.S. policymakers can take and are reportedly considering. So, for example, when it comes to export controls, changing the foreign direct product rule, something else that you've also seen in the United States over the past couple years is this new and renewed call for uh, for industrial policy. So giving tax incentives to companies to reshore uh, supply chains. And this isn't just in the United States. Uh, in Japan, their recent, their recent uh, economic stimulus package, which uh, in response to COVID-19 also included $2.2 billion for Japanese companies to reshore their production lines away from China. Uh, sorry, can I add one important point there? Uh, we're talking a lot about the supply side. That's what industrial policy and, and all those other ideas are incentives. But really, all, we need demand-side policies as well. Why does China have now make a lot of lithium-ion batteries? Because it has one of the biggest EV industries now in the world. So again, going back to the Tesla, you know, it was artificially induced demand. They artificially incentivized purchasing of EVs. So that's a demand-side policy that we don't think much about. And, and demand will drive supply. And over the long term, that's really the only sustainable way. Yeah, we have um, some outstanding, really thoughtful questions coming in. Um, um, I'd like to call on a number of the people who are asking these questions for their thoughts too, but we'll, we'll see what we can do here. Let me just uh, bring in a couple. Um, first, uh, this is from uh, Ed Chow at CSIS, um, who's asking a question getting at um, domestic drivers for China's use of coercive economic measures that nevertheless may target international um, entities. Uh, he asked specifically, to what extent are the real objectives of course of economic actions? Uh, he says by both sides, but I want to ask you, actually, can we start with China here? Um, uh, are they as stated or are they really driven by domestic politics and other foreign security policy objectives? If it's the latter, then efficacy may not be the best measure to assess policymaking in the future. Um, Ed, I absolutely agree. And it's a really important to bring point to bring up to talk about the domestic political drivers that may uh, be motivating these. 
Peter, actually, can I ask you to make a comment on this uh, to start us off on this point? Sure. I mean, look, I think there are important domestic drivers on um, both sides uh, in the use of coercive economic tools. Um, I'll, I'll start with the U.S. Uh, with the U.S. side. And I actually think, you know, the question is kind of to what extent the question was framed. And I think it's an excellent question is kind of to what extent are U.S. stated objectives, actual objectives? And I think there may in many ways be a more profound problem, which is that the U.S. government is not sure what its objectives across the board here are, right? I think if you look at the uh, trade war, for example, you know, there are deep divisions, uh, even within the Trump administration on kind of what the objectives are. I think there, there's kind of consensus there's an objective around trying to get China to reduce IP theft uh, and that kind of thing. Um, but I think there are divisions around, you know, are, are um, you know, is there also an objective of just a broad decoupling? I think some folks in the Trump administration would like to see a broad decoupling. I think some would like to see only a much more uh, selective decoupling. So I think on the, the U.S. side, it's, it's less kind of are the stated objectives, the real objectives, uh, and more, we need some coherence on what our objectives across the board are, and then we can figure out how to move forward. I think on the Chinese side, and I'd like Ashley uh, to come in on uh, on this as well, but I think there too, you know, you see evidence of, you know, very sharp divergence within China on what the objectives are. I think, you know, China too wants to reduce its dependence on the United States in certain key areas. We see them, for example, ripping U.S. made software out of all their government uh, computers. We see their massive semiconductor um, design and manufacturing capacity uh, investments to reduce their reliance on U.S. semiconductors. But I think they too have kind of divergent views internally on you know, how broad they want a decoupling to be and what exactly uh, their objectives uh, in the use of these uh, measures uh, measures are at a strategic level. Yeah, so just tagging in here, I think that we do have to go back to uh, China's core national interests as it laid out in its 2011 uh, plan, white paper for peaceful development. Um, and I think like when a lot of the times when China now uses a deploys course of economic measures, a lot of it focuses on those core national interests, one of them, which is uh, territorial sovereignty. Right. So when you see, for example, when it comes to Hong Kong, when you saw a, a BNP Pariba lawyer uh, expressing support for the Hong Kong protesters, China viewed that as an affront to its sovereignty. Uh, similarly, when you had a Daryl Morey here at, in the NBA here in the United States also expressing support for Hong Kong protesters, you saw similar dynamics. And then uh, when you throw Taiwan into the mix as well, in addition to these Hong Kong protests, so you had Taiwanese bubble tea chains uh, in Hong Kong also expressing support for the protesters. That's just multiple territorial sovereignty issues just layered upon each other. But then going a bit over to the economic side, so you China has had very specific stated goals from the beginning, right? So you had the 2006 medium and long-term plan on, sci on science and development. You see with Made in China 2025, you've seen with a lot of their five-year plans that they do want to become, uh, they want to be self-sufficient when it comes to te technology. And that in its, in its sense is a form of, um, and within all of these different plans, you see them identify strategic sectors, strategic and emerging industries for them to focus on. So there are very specific things that um, that China also prioritizes when it comes to the deployment of these measures. But then also the C the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP as a whole itself, 
there are also competing priorities there, right? So um, there are sometimes in which subnational and sub subnational party groups, like they might think, oh, to display more nationalism, to display more uh, loyalty to the central government, there may be certain actions that they will take on by themselves. So kind of as you said, Peter, tying back to what you said, it's um, it can be a little bit muddled to see exactly what they want to achieve at certain points in times. Um, I'm going to turn now to a question that comes from Aaron Badway uh, at uh, um, Her Majesty's Treasury in the UK. Um, how can the US government incentivize US companies to take steps to support the national interest, for example, to diversify supply chains, not adhere to CCP pressure, and notes the example of the NBA, picking up on what you're just saying, um, or specifically for the financial services industry to stop uh, financing China's rise. That's actually a really interesting point. Uh, bring, let's bring in thinking about um, capital markets. And so uh, some of the contemplated restrictions on capital markets. Um, uh, Damien, I want to come to you and to Peter on this. Actually, Peter's done some thinking about, in particular, about um, uh, industry and coalition within industry on to get at this point. Um, but Damien, let me come to you first, and then Peter, I'll pull you in on that. Well, I, I think broadly speaking, uh, I, I think, um, uh, you know, lining up allies is, is, is usually more effective than going one-on-one uh, -on -one here. And uh, I, I think that applies across the board uh, in terms of, because again, the supply chains are so global. Uh, there, you know, there, there are very few things where a single country uh, uh, monopolizes it. Uh, one example I can give is, you know, uh, we, when the U.S. and China were engaged in a trade war, there was a second equally important trade war going on between Japan and South Korea. Uh, you know, they're both obviously U.S. allies, but we didn't seem to pay that much attention to that. But that certainly hurt this, um, the, the, the bilateral trade between uh, Japan and South Korea. And, and a lot of that did fall into the tech supply chain um, realm. So we need to think a little bit more about how we uh, manage our allies a little more because, uh, again, um, when it comes to tech supply chains, they are essentially in the G20 countries. Uh, so that's, that's, that, 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 that's a key point that we need to think about because uh, that, that's really what we're talking about. And so to the extent we're kind of you know, neglecting that, it's, it's, it's pretty difficult to make progress. Peter, you wanna come in on this? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a, a great and very complex question that has multiple parts. I mean, and I'm not going to be able to get into um, all of them. But on the, the corporate sector side, I actually think um, the, the, the a first useful step is less around what government um, policy uh, would look like or government regulation would look like. And I think when it comes to sort of regulating uh, U.S. Um, uh, corporate behavior with respect to you know, things like the NBA fiasco and whatnot. There are a lot of challenges, but I do think you could see uh, industry come together around a kind of voluntary code of conduct for uh, companies active um, in, in China. You know, when you talk to many American companies, they all will say they have kind of a collective action problem here. You know, if they stand up for their employee or they speak out against China and they're the only one doing it, 
uh, China, of course, is going to whack them uh, pretty hard. And, and they're just, you know, you stick your neck out and you lose your head uh, kind of lesson. Um, but I think the more industry could come together around, here's some specific principles. You know, we believe in doing business in China. We believe our business in China is very valuable. Here's some specific principles we're going to adhere to. You know, we're not going to fire U.S. employees if they, in their personal capacity, speak out against uh, China. You know, we're not going to, um, you know, provide equipment that China's using for surveillance in Xinjiang. You can sort of go through and think about what would be in a uh, voluntary code of conduct that I think would actually be very impactful at addressing a number of the concerns uh, that have come up uh, over uh, the last year uh, or two about U.S. corporate uh, behavior in China. In terms of the broader supply chain question, I mean, I very much agree with Damien. Look, you know, we have to remember part of the reason or much of the reason that tech supply chains are in China, it's not just about the American market, right? Stuff is built in China and it's exported globally. And the U.S. is only a fraction uh, of the global market. And unless we have allies uh, internationally in Asia and in Europe, you know, at the end of the day, uh, there are going to be enormous incentives to continue manufacturing in China to serve all those other markets, uh, kind of regardless of what barriers we might put up uh, for the sale of Chinese technology uh, to the territory of the United States. Thanks very much. Um, we have a, a waterfall of terrific questions. I'm going to group three of them together that um, all deal with um, uh, close U.S. allies, including particularly in Northeast Asia. Uh, and um, I'll come to Ashley first, and then I want to pull in some others. But here are the three questions. The first one comes from Mark Wu at Harvard Law. The conversation so far has highlighted the limits of unilateral action without coordination with allies, yet several allies have been reluctant to act. What coercive tools, if any, could you see the U.S. deploying against its allies, um, for example, Taiwan and South Korea, in order to better align the actions of non-U.S. companies with U.S. efforts to increase their leverage? Additionally, this is from uh, Satu LeMay uh, at the East-West Center and uh, the Center for Naval Analysis. Many U.S. ally partners, including Japan, Australia, India, and South Korea, are also employing economic restrictions on uh, the PRC, including uh, on FDI, foreign direct investment, um, technology, and, and otherwise. How uh, should these be coordinated with the United States under a strategic framework agreement? So that's on... Um, uh, taking that, that point a little differently than the last question. And uh, the last one together <clears throat> from uh, Dylan Gerstel at CSIS. <clears throat> How do other countries in East Asia tech supply chains think about China dependency? For example, Japan authorizing 2 billion in COVID relief packages to subsidize companies moving some production out of China. Uh, the China plus approach that Damien, you were getting at before. So Ashley, why don't I come to you first? And then there's a, there's a lot in here for, for the group. Um, yeah, thanks. On the first question, so we've seen the United States deploy tariffs against uh, US allies, not just in Asia, but also in Europe. So I'm thinking specifically of 232 automobile tariffs here um, and also steel as well, in which we forced South Korea, which also South Korea, which not just has a robust steel industry, but also a robust semiconductor industry and that we're also um, dependent on. Uh, so we, we've actually deployed these tools against them. When it comes to export controls as well, pro proposed rules right now um, around how we're going to lower the foreign direct project rule, that can also directly affect TSMC, which is a huge industry in Taiwan. Um, on the second question, on a strategic framework agreement, um, the United States uh, 
the United States should be looking at supplier companies, supplier countries, as Damien was saying before, right? So for example, in the semiconductor industry, you don't just have the development of semiconductors themselves, but also semiconductor manufacturing equipment. So you're looking at places like the Netherlands, and then for semiconductors, you're also looking at places in Northeast Asia. So you have Japan, Korea, and Taiwan. Um, and so the United States needs to create a new multilateral framework in order to actually coordinate not just export restrictions, but also research and development um, on these issues as well. And then finally, on the third question about um, how countries in the region think about dependency on China, from the Taiwan perspective, Taiwan, uh, when Taiwan, when she came into office in 2016, one of her first economic plans was the new southbound policy to try to reduce um, to try to reduce dependency on China, which had increased a little bit over the previous presidency of Maingo with the Economic Cooperation Framework Agreement, and you see you see some Asian countries trying to take steps in order to create markets that don't necessarily exclude China, but to just reduce their own dependencies on the Chinese economy itself. And I'll stop there. Peter, Damien. Well, I just wanna comment briefly on, the, on Mark, uh, on your question. You know, because I think it is such a good question, right? I mean, if you look at it, it at the last couple of years of American um, policy, you know, we see a lot of what I think of as coerced multilateralism. Uh, you know, the U.S. is focused less on the traditional diplomacy of lining up allies at a governmental level to do things like enact joint export controls, and a lot more on basically telling the global private sector. Uh, you know, if you don't do what we want, we're going to come after you uh, in various ways. You know, we'll stop exporting goods to companies in Taiwan if they do things in China we don't like. We'll sanction companies in Europe if they do things in Iran uh, that we don't we don't like. And I think that in the the kind of short run, um, actually, we've seen the the economic and commercial impacts of this are pretty successful, right? You get a lot of global companies to do. Uh, what you um, want to do uh, in a way that, frankly, uh, a few years ago, I wouldn't have expected it to be uh, as successful as it is as it has been. I think the big question is, you know, when it comes to China, where where allies do have huge interests, also huge tensions, uh, as Ashley noted. A question is really how effective is this coercive approach going to be uh, over the long term? You know, and are is alienating allies ultimately going to undermine our interests? And I think that's kind of, frankly, you know, TBD. Uh, we're sort of seeing an experiment in it uh, play out in real time. I'll just uh, add a, a few brief comments here. Uh, I think one thing we haven't really talked about is sort of, you know the competition also in uh, third countries that are not necessarily allies, but some some of which are. Uh, you know, I mentioned the example of the the uh, techno smartphone brand that's all over Africa. It's probably one of the top brands there. Uh, it, it's interesting that Apple. Apple is not, um, and so, uh, so, so I think that matters over time. Is is that China, uh, rather than kind of chiding other countries or allies for uh, for for you know uh, doing business with China or what, or what have you that we're doing? I think you know it, it's probably more productive and more effective to kind of just sell products because that's what China is trying to do. It's trying to gain market share uh, in areas that the U.S. traditionally has not. Uh, been as uh, as uh, strong in and and so you know it may not work uh, everywhere, but they are they are making some inroads in 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 those in those third uh, third countries and uh, I think I think you know uh, brand matters because I think everyone associates things like Coca Cola, McDonald's with America, but if Techno becomes that brand, that's associated with China, so that's important. 
Terrific. Um, we're, I'm going to take a, a couple more questions right now for us to discuss, and then we're going to reveal the uh, results of, um, of your poll here. Um, but I just want to say, I'm not going to be able to take every question, but there's some outstanding ones here that have come from um, participants from East Asia that are tuning in from um, Hong Kong and Singapore. There's a number from uh, Europe specific to those regions. Your questions are outstanding. Um, can I just encourage you to uh, tweet them under the hashtag um, econ arsenal. And when we move after this to uh, our Twitter hangout, we can um, address them that way. I actually wanna hear, I wanna push them back on a number of you who are asking questions. I just wanna highlight two of the themes there and then I'm gonna ask my last question to the group. But some of the themes that you all are getting at include what is the better way for the United States, for example, to use export control authorities um, or investment restrictions, also capital market restrictions, what's going on, what are the ideas proposed in the United States for restricting uh, Chinese participants from US capital markets? There's terrific questions there. There's also a couple of really good questions about what should coordination look like um, the United States with particular other like-minded uh, allies or um, other countries, uh, not necessarily in existing um, multilateral uh, frameworks, but uh, perhaps bespoke for this particular competition. So can I just encourage you all um, to ask them in that way? The last question I wanna put to you all um, as a group though, gets at the issue of um, success or effectiveness. This comes from Dan Dresner. Um, and Dan, I hope you join us on Twitter because I want to ask this question back to you too. But um, he's saying, uh, for this is for Peter, could you elaborate on how U.S. efforts to pressure China have yielded mixed results? It is true that the increase in tariffs imposed uh, moderate costs on the Chinese economy and increased U.S. tariff revenue. Uh, but this doesn't. But doesn't this overlook the cost of the pressure on the U.S. economy? Federal aid to the agricultural sector alone has outweighed the revenue gained from tariffs. Yes. So just I'm going to add editorially on this. I appreciate this question and thinking about the economic costs, including of undertaking these measures. We could put that same. We could frame that same question back on China. The cost that they are that China may be assuming to engage in some of these activity activities on its own. Uh, so Peter, I'd like you, for you to answer this. And Dan, this is my challenge to you. What about on the political side? What are the political effects or benefits that may be achieved even uh, when there are economic costs that the United States takes on itself to engage in these activities? So Peter, why don't you respond to that? If anyone else wants to say something on those uh, success and costs me metrics, please go ahead. And then Peter's gonna uh, close us out of this before we transition over to Twitter at um, hashtag EconArsenal. No, thanks so much, uh, Dan, uh, for the question. I certainly did not mean to ignore or uh, understate the uh, economic costs that these tools are imposing on the United States. As, as you say, at least as of a couple of months ago, uh, the value of the tariffs collected was outweighed by the agricultural aid, and certainly that uh, the, the Trump administration has uh, given to farmers to help deal with the cost of the trade war, uh, and certainly U.S. Um, companies have borne very significant costs here. And I think when it comes to coercive economic measures against China, we need to have a candid discussion about uh, how do we weigh uh, the collateral um, economic costs. You know, this is a real economy. It's a huge economy. It's the second biggest economy in the world. It's not North Korea. It's not Venezuela. It's not an economy where 
the collateral costs, of course, of economic measures to us are, you know, frankly, macroeconomically negligible. Um, and I think we need to weigh those very, very carefully as we do this. You know, I, I think, Dan, you just came back to what I said at the beginning. I agree with, I think, your point and Liz's point, which is I think that at a political level, the um, achievements are mixed. You know, we saw, you know, some concessions out of the Chinese. I personally believe the trade war concessions out of the Chinese are more than we would have gotten absent the trade war. Um, but they're certainly not even a majority of what we were looking for. Um, you know, we've seen Chinese companies subject to some of these measures continue to stay in business. And I think we need to look very carefully at what we're actually achieving here uh, and what we have achieved and frankly, what we haven't achieved um, before we, you know, kind of double down uh, on many of these measures uh, going forward. Uh, let me leave it there. Damien, do you have anything you want to add on this? And then I'm just going to put the polls uh, on the screen and, uh, and we'll close uh, on time at 11. Well, I think you covered it really well, Peter. So I'll, I'll the last word from you. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you. Um, just before close, um, so uh, the first poll we're putting up the results of, and we'll also share these results in a write-up uh, and on uh, Twitter. Over the next 12 months, interesting, uh, uh, sort of seeing uh, a lot of uh, interest uh, or expectation we're going to see in the export controls and supply chain issues uh, kind of edging out uh, tariffs, not surprising there as we look at, at, at all the focus on supply chains uh, and export controls. Let's see if that changes over the next five years, if people think things will look different uh, over the next five years rather than the next 12 months. Uh, not that much, except it uh, looks like uh, people do think the relative importance of tariffs uh, will decline, but still a, a major focus on uh, export controls and supply chain restrictions. Uh, and then obviously CFIUS, uh, and investment restrictions, which certainly those of you in Washington uh, see a lot of debate on um, in Washington right now. So I'm um, not surprised uh, that people are expecting uh, an increase uh, there. And then uh, finally, let's pull up our third and um, final uh, poll. COVID-19, so a majority, a plurality of you, 45%, think that COVID-19 pandemic uh, and the aftermath of that will actually increase China's leverage. Uh, about a third of you think that it will decrease and um, about a quarter think it'll stay uh, the same. So uh, so interesting set of results uh, there as well. Well, um, let me just close by thanking all of you from all over the world. I know some of you are up in the middle of the night in Asia attending this, and some of you are up very early in the morning in California uh, attending this. Uh, very much appreciate all of you from all over the world uh, joining us. I particularly appreciate my co-panelists, uh, Ashley, uh, Liz and Damien uh, for taking time to do this. And Ashley and Liz, it was a pleasure writing this report uh, with you. Uh, for all of you who are joining us, I urge you uh, first to check out our report. It is available now on the CNAS uh, website at uh, www.cnas.org. Um, encourage you to read uh, the report. It has a handy executive summary for those of you who won't read uh, through all of it. But if you have the time, please do read through uh, all of it. Um, and then finally, as Liz mentioned, for the next half hour, uh, we will be uh, on Twitter um, under the hashtag, hashtag EconArsenal, uh, answering a number of the questions that we didn't get to now, um, and uh, also just continuing the very rich discussion uh, we had. So thank you. You've been listening to CNAS Live. To receive invitations to future public events and to learn more about our experts' work, visit cnas.org slash join.
You can also connect with us on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening.